So, my dad used to tell me that uh, ACDC was playing whenever I was born on the, the TV set, and I came out off of my head to the, to the music as we went. That maybe explains how much I love to dance and how much I love rock music. Uh, my mom also used to tell me that when I was younger, she was once at a prayer meeting and had this unmistakable sense that God was telling her that she'd eventually need to give me up to his service. It made her nervous then when I later went on some distant mission trips to places like South Africa and India. She was like, maybe he's going to have to be there forever. He's going to call in the mission field there. Uh, I, of course, uh, did follow Jesus in the call to ministry, and now I'm a lot closer to home <laughs> than places like India or South Africa, which he's very grateful for. But I am here serving God the best that I can. It's stories like these, though, and, and all the emotions and promises and assumptions, hopes, sometimes even wounds or anxieties that can come along with them. Tell us something about who we are, how we are, where we fit into the world around us, or like origin stories for us, right? The stories that we believe determine the trajectory of our lives, the stories that we accept about the world. And in particular, the stories of our origins, the events and character of our first and most formative years, they had shape and contour for our lives in some profound ways. So this, this morning and in the next couple of months, we're going to be looking at some origin stories. We're going to be looking through the book of Genesis and studying that together. Um, we're talking about our beginnings, all of our beginnings, as we explore this book that literally the name means beginnings, the book of Genesis. In this series, we won't be going verse by verse or chapter by chapter, as you probably can tell by now whenever I go through series and books, I like to uh, not get bogged down too, too much in uh, the narrative so we don't spend years in one book. But we are going to be exploring it, some significant things here, and significant figures in particular through the book of Genesis. Uh, and uh, talk about what it reveals about who they are and what it means for us to look at their example and what it means to live faithfully in our world. These are real people with real faith and real failures whose lives foreshadow real hope that we find in Jesus. But this morning, the first per person that we're going to talk about is wholly different from everyone else in the series because it's the only one with perfect faith and without failure. He's also the only one who isn't human. At least he hasn't entered into creation yet in the incarnation in that way. We're talking about God, Yahweh Elohim, the creator. Now, I've got some danger here because uh, Genesis 1 is the subject of tons of books that have been uh, uh, written about it. There's so many places you can go and directions that you can go in your exploration of Genesis 1. In fact, Whenever I did my introduction to Old Testament class in undergrad, I remember we spent like the first six weeks just in the first few chapters of Genesis. I was like, we have a lot more Old Testament to cover in, in this thing. But it's so important that we spend so much time in it. I want to set aside for a moment this morning all the questions that we might have about the how of the universe's beginnings. Instead, I want us to reflect on the who of what this account is revealing. Who is this God? That's the point of this series. What are we to understand about God's character and our relationship to God as through creation? Something that uh, may be particularly helpful for us as we uh, is for us to see what was being revealed 
about God to the first audience of Genesis, ancient Israel, in contrast to the stories of their neighbors. We're going to talk a bit about Egypt and Canaan and Babylon. They had some creation stories of their own that give context to how we read and understand Genesis 1. Uh, I'm not going to go, you can take deep dives of your own and go Google this or explore them later if you want to, but I'll give you some cliff notes. The Egyptians had stories uh, of their sun god, Atum, also called Ra at different times. Also, I think the name Ta was mentioned. But this uh, person was self, this god was self-created and rose out of the primordial waters and then basically sneezed out the other gods who struggled with uh, each other for power over the rest of creation afterwards. Sneezed out is the polite version of it. There's some other uh, versions of that as well that I cannot even mention here. Uh, the Canaanites, they believed in Baal. You've maybe heard that uh, name of um, their god mentioned in scripture as well, as well. Baal was their storm god who conquered the powers of the chaotic waters with clubs. He got a friend to fashion him some clubs to go and uh, beat the, the chaotic waters who were threatening. The most popular account, though, from the area uh, and from this time is known as the Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian creation account. Wild. I got to read it for the first time just this last week uh, in preparation for this. Basically, again, Cliff Notes version, there's these uh, two gods kind of representing uh, the different versions of water, fresh water and salt water. Apsu is the, the father one, and Tiamat is the mother. And they have a bunch of baby gods, but Absu thinks that they're too noisy and wants to kill them. I get the idea of being annoyed at noise sometimes, but he takes it pretty far. The problem is the kids get wind of that, and they turn Apsu, and they kill him instead. Then Tiamat gets mad and summons a demonic horde, and one of the kids, Marduk, is elected as their champion to go against Tiamat. This all-out brawl ensues, and Marduk captures Tiamat. He, again, is similar to Baal, representing uh, the powers of the storm. Uh, captures her in this big net. He has the sword. He cuts her in half, a laser, and then creates the world out of these waters. Out of that, he builds Babylon as this earthly capital for the gods to stop on their travels to and from the underworld area and the overworld area, and they make important decisions there. And important in the story, he creates humans then to serve the gods so that they can rest. There's a whole big theme in Enuma Elish about gods just want to rest. And so they, uh, they create humans as their servants. Now there's some common themes in all of these narratives. This idea of creation out of chaos, struggle for power and maintaining order with violence, in the midst of all that, humans basically exist to serve the gods and exist at the whim of these cosmic powers. And then you have Israel's God, who does not emerge from anything. But before the beginning, Yahweh simply is. There are images of deep waters within Genesis 1. The word waters in verse 2 is even to home, which seems to have kind of these uh, resonances with the name Tiamat in Babylonian account, but it's not, you know, this great dragon or this great uh, sea creature or, 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 uh, or, or goddess. The waters are just waters. 
the, the deep water. They're part of creation. But God orders simply by speaking a word. In fact, all of the natural forces are so often, that are so often portrayed as deities by their neighboring countries, are simply part of creation, subject to the master brushstroke of God as the creator. And in the midst of all of this, humanity is created not to serve the whims of capricious gods, but as the bearers of God's image, partnering with God, stewarding creation. And finally, there is rest for God, but not at the expense of our work for God. God rests because he finished the task. And he's enjoying it. It's a powerful contrast to the rival stories of their day. But it's also a powerful contrast to some of the narratives and assumptions about the world origins that we hear today. Beyond the debates that so many have about creation versus evolution, you know, the exact mechanics of how the world as we know it was made, I think that there's uh, something we can wrestle with here today, about the assumptions that undergird our understanding and observations and theories about the beginnings of the world. Faith and science are not incompatible, but there are some assumptions and ideologies in secular society that are squarely at odds with Scripture's portrayal of God and his created world. So I am not a philosopher by any means, so I, I tried my best to find the uh, the right words for these things. I'll give you the plain English versions of them too, which are probably more accurate to what I'm trying to give. But things like nihilism, pessimism, and social Darwinism are kind of in contrast to what we see in this, uh, this creation account in Genesis 1. The idea that life is meaningless, that there's no creator, that the universe as we know it just is a result of chance. Of an infinite amount of possibilities, it just happened to happen. That's a, an idea that's in our world. The idea that life will ultimately disappoint us. You've heard Berkeley's law before. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Or the idea that life is competition. This uh, idea of social Darwinism was, uh, built, it was uh, building on by Herbert Spencer, uh, the work of Darwin, in order to appropriate those biological theories and observations in, for the social uh, science and social theories. So the idea of survival of the fittest, there being a scarcity of resources and emphasis on survival that undergirds our society and the way that we interact with the world, that life is inherently a competition. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Right? As I reflected on these this week, I noted how similar they sound in comparison to these other creation myths in Egypt and Canaan and Babylon, the ideas of chaos, futility, Conquest without any deities in the mix. But Genesis is quite different. God creates his design. Seven times we hear, and God said, and it happened exactly as he said it would, or and it was so, depending on your translation. Seven times it says, this was not all random. And if this is not all accidental, it's not all random, then it means that we are here for a reason. If we're to believe along with King David in Psalm 139 that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, then that means that God made you with a purpose, made us with a purpose, with beauty. God didn't make a mistake. You matter. 
Your neighbor matters. Strangers matter. People you don't like matter. The birds matter. Mosquitoes matter. All of this matters. So God created with design, and God creates with delight. Another seven times, God saw that it was good. Not only does the world matter, it matters in a positive manner. God says that it is good. Those other gods of Israel's neighbors, they also see, were said to create with purpose, right? But that purpose was generally self-centered. It was to serve them. They just wanted to make things easier for themselves. Yahweh creates, and then he sits back and smiles at his creation. This is a much more optimistic point of view. It's why we also need to be careful when talking about the gospel to not begin with the fall. As if sin is the beginning of the story. As if humanity is basically bad at our core. If God created us and called us very good, then it means that no matter how bleak things get, we can remember that God will ultimately redeem and restore sees something valuable, worth restoring. So we can be a people of hope, a people that sees the best potential in all things and in all people. God creates with design and with delight, and God creates with a desire for relationship. This isn't a seven, but we see another number three here as there's three blessings that appear in this text. In verse 22, God blessed them being the fish and the birds and said, be fruitful and fill up the waters in the sky. In verse 28, God blessed them being humanity and said, be fruitful and fill the whole earth and rain and cultivate the world. In chapter 2, verse 3, God blesses the seventh day and makes it holy because he rested. We see no hint in any of these blessings of a scarcity mindset. We see God kind of fill the earth. You see no hint of God subjugating creation or humanity. God generous with his blessings. God invites us into the party. God rests and will later call his people to model that same rest. So God did not create out of self-interest. and not, God did not create us to be self-interested people. If that's true, then that means that we can be a people that hopes in God's provision. We can be a people that don't cut others down to build ourselves up, but instead give freely and humble ourselves because we've known our worth. We can be that way because of who God is. God is creator, sustainer, good father. The question is, do we know this God? That's the main point of Genesis 1. Do you know this God, the one true creator? Genesis doesn't even make an attempt to make a rational proof for God's existence. Neither does most of the rest of Scripture. It introduces us to God. Gives us an experience of who he is. God is instead revealing to us what he is like. To its first audience, Genesis reveals that God is not angry, self-serving, or capricious, but rather deeply committed to creation. And of course, the Bible reveals God being so committed to humanity that he would give up himself completely in order to 
that come in the person of Jesus Christ to be among us, to redeem, to reconcile, and restore us. Jesus, the word of God and flesh, enters into the world with the same life-giving power, joyful purpose, and desire for relationship. But to us, Genesis reveals that God is not absent, nor is God a distant, disengaged creator, kind of like the clockmaker picture that you may be heard of. We are not just meaningless blobs of flesh hurtling through space uh, as a happy accident. We are fearfully and wonderfully made by the one true God who has revealed himself to us. We are made with real purpose for covenant relationship with our creator. Will we have eyes to see, ears to hear? Will we have hearts ready to receive them? Will we let the world know of this good news? May it be so. Amen.